Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a Reader's Guide podcast. My name is Alex Drake. I'll be the host of the show. And before we get into some of my introductory comments about what this podcast is about and why you might want to listen to it, I've selected about five minutes worth of Nietzsche quotes from other sources that I think do a great job presenting a high-level overview of some of the ideas and themes that we'll be addressing in this podcast. I highly recommend giving the next five minutes a listen. Nietzsche does a great job explaining things. He's a beautiful prose writer. And even if you don't necessarily understand some of the things that he's saying, I do highly recommend giving them a listen. If, on the other hand, you're not too interested in listening to these five minutes and want to get into the real meat and potatoes of my podcast, just skip ahead five minutes to about the seven, eight minute mark. That being said, thank you for joining, and I will talk to you on the other side. The Gay Science, Section 270. What does your conscience say? Quote, you shall become the person you are, unquote. The Gay Science, Section 266. Where cruelty is needed. Those who have greatness are cruel to their virtues and to secondary considerations. The Gay Science, Section 268. What makes one heroic? Going out to meet, at the same time, one's highest suffering and one's highest hope. The Gay Science, Section 125. The Madman. Have you not heard of that madman? who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried, I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed. 
And whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. And they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. The Gay Science, Section 341. The Greatest Weight. What if, some day or night, a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life, as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Even this spider and this moonlight between the trees, and even this moment and I myself, the eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down again and again, and you with it, speck of dust. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, You are a god, and never have I heard anything more divine. If this thought gained possession of you, it would change you as you are, or perhaps crush you. The question in each and every thing, do you desire this once more and innumerable times more, would lie upon your actions as the greatest weight? Or how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to crave nothing more fervently than this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal? Twilight of the Idols, What I Owe to the Ancients, Section 4 for it is only in the Dionysian mysteries, in the psychology of the Dionysian condition, that the fundamental fact of the Hellenic instinct expresses itself, its will to life. What did the Hellen guarantee to himself with these mysteries? Eternal life, the eternal recurrence of life, the future promised and consecrated in the past, the triumphant yes to life beyond death and change, True life is collective continuation of life through procreation, through the mysteries of sexuality. It was for this reason that the sexual symbol was to the Greeks the symbol venerable as such, the intrinsic profound meaning of all antique piety. Every individual detail in the act of procreation, pregnancy, birth, awoke the most exalted and solemn feelings. In the teachings of the mysteries, pain is sanctified. The pains of childbirth sanctify pain in general. All becoming and growing, all that guarantees the future, postulates pain. For the eternal joy in creating to exist, for the will to life eternally to affirm itself, the torment of childbirth must also exist eternally. All this is contained in the word Dionysus. I know of no more exalted symbolism than this Greek symbolism, the symbolism of the Dionysian. 
the profoundest instinct of life, the instinct for the future of life, for the eternity of life, is in this word experienced religiously. The actual road to life, procreation, as the sacred road. It was only Christianity, with resentment against life and its foundations, which made of sexuality something impure. It threw filth on the beginning, on the prerequisite of our life. Twilight of the Idols, Expeditions of an Untimely Man, Section 51 My ambition is to say in ten sentences what everyone else says in a book, what everyone else does not say in a book. I have given mankind the profoundest book it possesses, my Zarathustra. Hey everyone, thanks for joining. My name is Alex Drake. I'm going to be hosting this little podcast lecture series on Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a book for everyone and no one by Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, for those of you who are maybe less familiar with some of Nietzsche's work, I loaded the introduction with several quotes of his from different books that give a decent background in some of the things that Nietzsche was con uh, considered important and things that he was in conversation with um, that are issues that we will see in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, but since Thus Spoke Zarathustra is a little bit different from his other books, um, I figured I'd give sort of a straightforward or more clear explanation in Nietzsche's own words as to what he cares about. Um, so my name is Alex Drake. I'm going to be hosting this lecture series, and uh, I've, I've been interested in Nietzsche for five or six years now, and Thus Spoke Zarathustra in particular, uh, it's my favorite book of all time. Nietzsche, it's his favorite book of all time, and he thinks it's the best book ever written, which is a little immodest, but it's captured my attention for <laughs> at least 30 read-throughs, and uh, I, I'm willing to agree with him that it is probably the best and most important book ever written. Uh, I know that's a pretty tall claim, but if you bear with me through the duration of this series, hopefully you'll be able to see why that might be the case. So, as I mentioned, I've read this book 30 times at least, and individual sections therein at least, uh, I don't know, more times than that, uh, depending on what I need at the time, I'll go back and look at a particular section and sort of meditate over what it's saying and try and figure it out. And through each of these reads, I have found immense value every time. Um, the way I sort of look at the book, and probably a good way to think about the book, is it's uh, a very philosophically sound self-help book for different ways that you should develop yourself, different ways you should see the world, and different ways of seeing other people, and uh, basically trying to demonstrate what predispositions you have um, as a biological entity, where they come from, why they are that way, and trying to sort of make it, give it a much more natural basis compared to some of the ways that we tend to think about things. Um, it, and if nothing else, I think that it's a very interesting it's a very complete book, a very complete work of one of the world's most intelligent people that has ever existed and I tend to think that whenever you're trying to learn anything or become a better person or whatever it is you want to do uh, trying to map on the skills and assets of someone who excels in the area that you want to excel in mapping those things onto your own body and trying to either think that way throw a basketball like them cook a cook an omelet like them um, it's very good to try and 
steal, for lack of a better word, steal the different characteristics that you look up to in someone else and try and make them your own. And I think Nietzsche in giving us Thus Spoke Zarathustra has given us a rather complete uh, guide uh, that isn't just here, do this, this, this. It's really not like that at all. Um, but there is a lot of value in it. It's a very dense book, but uh, I think if you're if you're very serious about sort of improving yourself from a psychological perspective, a personality perspective, and if if you're any way like me and need to understand why you should do things or why things are the way they are, the underlying basis of everything, just to have a justification for acting a particular way or being a certain way or, or reacting to people a certain way, I think you'll find this book very, very impressive. So I've been um, a little bit about me... Before reading Nietzsche, I was always interested in philosophy and psychology and stuff like that, but I, I never really knew why. I I remember a friend of mine in my very last year of university, uh, my fourth year of university, I was reading Thus Spoke Zarathustra probably for the very first time in the computer lab of the business program uh, that I went to school for. And a friend of mine came up and he said, Hey, Drake, uh, How's it going? Good, good, good. And here I am in the computer lab. Everyone else is working on assignments and projects. And here I am reading this weird philosophy book. And he looks at me sort of strangely. Says Drake, like, I've seen you in here a couple times reading that book. Like, why, why are you interested in philosophy? Why are you interested in the Nietzsche guy? And it was funny because I had no answer for him. And as I got more and more into Nietzsche and thinking more and more about let's say continental philosophy or hardcore philosophy rather than the stuff that I'd been dealing with up to that point more and more people would ask me like why are you into this stuff and for a long time I didn't have a reason to me it was just intensely fascinating stuff um, and contrary to some people's opinions I actually found it like incredibly useful uh, most people you talk to will say what the hell are you talking about philosophy for it's it's useless garbage like uh, they're just telling you things that you already know or or they're just confusing you um, and for me then, when I didn't really have an answer, I sort of understood those arguments, but for me, I, there was some sort of uh, underlying resonance within myself as to why I should be paying attention to these things. And as time has gone on, and I've sort of read more and more, it, it, my fascination with Nietzsche in particular, but philosophy and things in general, really stems back to even my youngest years. Um, so as a child, I, and today I'm a very inquisitive person, and I was an inquisitive person as a child, but I never really had um, the conviction that the way that I was doing things or that my personality and the way that I was set up or the way that I handled situations or the way that I saw things, I never really had confidence that I was doing those things the right way. I was sort of haunted by the question, not haunted by the question, but driven by the question, how do I be a good human? What is involved in being a good human? And the related question, what's involved in living a good life? Um, and so for a long, long time, I even to this day, I've really tried to hone my worldview and hone the, the framework by which I make decisions and hone hone my personality and the way that I interact with people so that I can adapt to different situations and succeed in each of them. And it's been a very long process of sort of 
incorporating both lived experience and then also doing the thinking concurrently with that to try and understand why this was effective, this wasn't effective, oh, I should be more like this, I should be less like this, and really trying to figure out, okay, well, who the heck am I? What are my natural skills? What are my natural weaknesses? How do I configure those things or work on those things to interact best with the world? And then when it came to the world generally, if you're trying to operate in any environment, it's good to understand the rules by which that government, uh, by which that environment is governed. So, okay, cool, I'm getting to know a bit about myself, and cool, I'm getting to know a bit about the environment, whether that's uh, nature, whether that's space, whether that's reality, whether that's just other people, whether that's my classroom, whether that's my job, whether whoever it is, just trying to understand the sort of underpinning mechanisms by which those different environments run. And through time, as you sort of develop more self-knowledge and develop, develop more external knowledge and you sort of try and configure that information in a way that makes sense in your head, uh, I do believe that there is immense value in doing that sort of activity because you just become a much more functional and uh, capable human being. And uh, throughout this whole journey from, I don't know, junior school to high school to university and now into my adult working years, um, I have found that reading philosophy and reading the people that seemed to be important to me at the time, and now it's been Nietzsche for a while, I find that uh, they more or less are able to provide a lot of the logical justification for things that you're doing and ways that you're behaving so that I sort of understood, oh, okay, uh, I need to change my behavior when I'm interacting with uh, members of the opposite gender that I want to date in this way because this is more attractive because this is sort of how human psychology works. Or I need to think about my own development in these ways because reality tends to go this way and these are the things that uh, govern reality in that realm. So I need to make sure that the way that I'm building myself is in accordance with that. Uh <laughs> It's sort of like the, to use a very new agey and horrible, horribly overused term, like you want to go with the stream, you want to swim with the stream, and whichever way life is going, you should go with it. And even though that's a very overused or sort of kitschy sounding thing, I think there's a lot of value to that, that if you sort of understand what is valued in whatever environment you're in or what is useful in whatever environment you're in, and you're in, and then try and find skills that within yourself that can suit that environment and respond to those cues in the environment it's very good to like implement those and work on those and i think that nietzsche coming back to him um out of any philosopher i've ever read is just miles and miles and miles farther than anyone else in thinking about uh, the underlying rules of the of reality and how those flow through all the sort of higher level realms of being or becoming uh so thinking about what constitutes the nature of reality and then thinking that through through like the biological, physiological, psychological, sociological, uh, anthropological, all the different realms can in some way be, uh, some of the rules can be derived from Nietzsche's insights and he's got great insights into all of those realms and he really paints a great picture about what it means to be an individual in the type of reality that we live in. And Compared to every other philosopher, I, I don't think there's anyone nearly as good at doing that as he is. So uh, this podcast slash lecture series might be good for you if 
if you're the kind of person that uh, really wants to make sure that you're being the best version of yourself that you can be, um, and if you're if you're trying to just figure out like certain questions about how things work or why things are going the way they are, uh, Nietzsche provides a number of tools and insights that are useful frameworks to look at different problems in. Um, so that's a little bit about myself and about why I'm into philosophy and why I'm into Nietzsche and why I've read him so many goddamn times. Um, Thus spoke Zarathustra just, as I mentioned, a, a large number of times. Um, if you're, if you've already been acquainted with Nietzsche, you probably uh, know a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about. Um, but if you're new to Nietzsche and you're looking to get into him, certainly I'm hoping that this series will help you, um, because I'm taking probably his most popular book and I'm, I'm hoping to just sort of use some of my personal experience and my understandings to explain different passages and sections within there. We're going to go through the entire book and I'm going to point out key sections and key things that I've thought of and different problems that I've had that this book has sort of helped me see more clearly. Um, but that'll be a bit difficult because <laughs> uh, Nietzsche says in a couple letters and in a couple places in other books that there's basically, I think he says, to understand six words in this book is to understand more than any other book can teach you. Um, and he, he goes on and on about how each sentence is just so profound. And in, in my experience, that's a little overstated, but not by much. There are some filler sentences that I don't think mean a lot, but it's I have read individual sentences a number of times, and on the 21st read-through, it'll stand out to me as being a crucial linchpin in the, uh, figuring out some problem I've had. So... Uh, it's a very condensed book. It's in conversation with uh, a number of ancient and more modern ideas uh, from, you know, ancient Greek and Roman writings to the Bible to philosophy from basically before Plato, before Socrates, the pre-Socratics, all the way through to Kant and Schopenhauer and even some of the English utilitarians like John Stuart Mill. So he's, he's taking on a lot in a book that's just a little bit over 200 pages. Um, but my goal is to go through and try and, try and make it a more understandable book. Um, and complicating the fact is that it's not written like a normal philosophy book or a normal sort of academic book. Um, it's a fiction book. And uh, it, follows a, it follows a guy named Zarathustra, the Greek name Zoroaster, who you may have heard of, who was a Persian prophet. And in history, uh, Zoroaster, he was the founder of the religion Zoroastrianism, which still exists in small parts of Persia and India somewhere, too. And Zoroaster, in history, he, he was the first person to see at the basis of reality as the metaphysical truth, uh, the forces of good and evil. And so Nietzsche takes this character and puts him in a fictional book where he sort of, since he's the first person to put good and evil at the basis of things, According to Nietzsche's view of reality, good and evil aren't at the basis of things, and Zoroaster, the Zarathustra guy, should be the first person to recognize that and sort of atone for his mistakes. So what we get with the rest of the book is basically this prophet-type character going around and giving different speeches on different subjects. Um, the book is divided into four different parts, uh, each written between the course of uh, 1883 to 1885, 
and at least the first three parts, each part took no more than 10 days for Nietzsche to write, uh, or so he claims. And so each of the four books is broken into subsections of about 15 to 20, 25 uh, minor speeches on different subjects. There's a very, very loose plot that goes through the book, but it's really the philosophical value lies in each of the speeches, although some of the structural elements of the book um, are handy philosophical lessons as well. So I'll try and touch on some of those too. Um, Nietzsche's other books, if you're just getting into Nietzsche and you find all this stuff a little overwhelming or very unclear, um, a lot of people recommend Beyond Good and Evil to be the first book that uh, new newcomers should read. Um, he wrote this book right after that spoke Zarathustra. And uh, in a letter to a friend, he's, he described the book as an attempt to explain everything that he explained in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, but in a totally different style. So in it, Nietzsche returns to his much more customary aphorism style of writing. Aphorisms are basically just very short sections that uh, of writing that aren't necessarily related. They're usually on one topic or another, maybe a handful of topics, but... He, uh, he basically dedicates about a half a page to a page to single ideas. Um, and in that way, it's very, it's very easy to read because you don't need to keep in mind all sorts of different things while you're reading each section. Some other philosophers, um, they tend to write very long chapters with very long paragraphs with all the background information and all the proofs that they can come up with to explain what they're talking about. Um, I find that style is very hard to keep track of sometimes, whereas Nietzsche, he's very, he's very short, very brief, very concise, and very clear. Uh, so, as I mentioned at the beginning, he tries to write in 10 sentences what other people write in an entire book. And the benefit of that is that um, it, it's easier to follow, you can get a lot more done more quickly, but it's difficult because it's very hard to read such condensed material. You really need to sort of either have a background in what he's talking about, a background in the different philosophies and ideas that he's dealing with, or really a good, uh, just a good working knowledge of Nietzsche's philosophy that you've built up. Um, I know for myself, I've, I've spent the last five or six years basically only reading Nietzsche. He jokes in his autobiography that some of his contemporaneous readers, and there, there, there weren't many Nietzsche fans while he was alive. Uh, he's one of those sort of classical artist ta uh, stories where no one appreciates him till he's dead. Um, but he was saying that some of his readers had told him that he basically turned them off other writers because his writing is so good. Um, and I, I, I agree with that. I, I find it very slow almost to read other authors now that I've read so much Nietzsche. Um, but anyway, yeah, he writes in short sections. He's in and out quickly, and he tries to hit the point hard and then move on to the next subject. So if you're looking to just get into Nietzsche, um, Beyond Good and Evil is a good choice to get into. I personally really like The Gay Science. Um, it was the book immediately preceding Zarathustra. Um, got a lot of interesting ideas in there and it's sort of interesting you can see in many in many ways that uh, the writer of that book was getting ready for sort of a big big storm of ideas in thus spoke zarathustra in fact actually the the end of book four of the gay science which uh now there's a book five but he wrote that after thus spoke zarathustra at the end of book four the very last section is actually the introduction to zarathustra so 
once we get into Zarathustra's prologue, part one will actually be more or less identical to what Nietzsche wrote at the end of The Gay Science, so it's a pretty neat connection connection there. Uh, so The Gay Science is good. Um, a lot of people like um, recommending The Genealogy of Morals as one of the first books to read. I don't really, I wouldn't really recommend that one. Don't read The Birth of Tragedy first. That was Nietzsche's very first book that he ever wrote. Um, it's important uh, in that it introduces his concept of the Dionysian, which we spoke about a bit at the introduction, but um, it's a bit harder to read. I find Nietzsche's earlier works, like uh, Birth of Tragedy or Human All to Human or Daybreak or The Dawn or whatever you want to call it, I find those... Uh, much less interesting to read. Nietzsche hadn't really perfected his style as much as he had once he got to the gay science or Thus Spoke Zarathustra or any of his works afterwards. Uh, Twilight of the Idols and the Antichrist being notable. Um, actually, it's pretty funny. Like One of the reasons I love Zarathustra is that it's just a beautiful book. Um, it's beautifully written. Um, in terms of German prose, uh, not only was Nietzsche a wonderful philosopher, but he was an, he was an excellent prose writer as well. Uh, he's sort of amongst people who study German prose and study German literature. He's sort of considered up there with like Goethe and Heinrich Heinrich Heine. Uh, so the English corollary would be if there was a philosopher who is as uh, as remarkable a writer as Shakespeare. Um, that would be sort of what we're looking at with Nietzsche. So not only are the ideas very profound, but the writing is very beautiful. Um, the imagery is very beautiful. And uh, I think, as we'll find out, many of the ideas themselves are actually very beautiful. Um, so to get back to Zarathustra, um, one of the main things that's difficult about it uh, not is not just that it's fiction, but that many of the arguments aren't, they're not even presented like arguments that Nietzsche presents in his other books, which even though he doesn't really get into deep explanations of why he's logically correct on each point uh, in, in his books, instead he just sort of says, this is the truth, and he uh, describes the truth as sparingly as he needs to to get his point across. He doesn't get into deep proofs. He doesn't get into uh, a lot of like nitty-gritty stuff. He just sort of like high-level outlines what other people would write in an entire book in, say, 10 sentences. It's sort of funny, like, one thing that comes to mind, uh, ever since I started reading Nietzsche's, I, <laughs> friends will recommend to me to read a certain book, or they'll say, oh my god, have you read this book? And uh, oftentimes I just say, like, is it a book where you could summarize exactly what the guy's point is in two sentences? And most of the time when I press them on it, they say, yes, you can. So <laughs> not to not to call out anyone in particular, but... That's exactly what I'm going to do. Like Malcolm Gladwell books are very interesting and he tells interesting stories, but you can sort of get the point across in two sentences. And I, I just don't have the, uh, maybe time is the wrong word. I just don't have the patience to read a whole book to understand why people psychologically make quick first impressions. Like you can tell me the premise of Blink immediately and I don't need to read the thing. Same thing. Uh, so I work in business. So one time a couple of years ago, I picked up... Uh, a book on emotional in, emotional intelligence. So I think uh, maybe 10, 15, 20 years, no, not 20, 10 years ago, this whole thing, EQ, not IQ, EQ became popular in sort of management circles. And so being someone who 
uh, I work in business. Uh, my management and interaction style is like very amicable. I try and get along with people. I try and form friendships with the people that I'm working with. Um, I picked up this book to see, oh, you know, like this is interesting. A lot of people have read this. They raved about it. Maybe I should read this and try and learn something from it to sort of develop my style. And at the very beginning of the book, there was sort of a, a chart of 24 different traits that uh, successful quote-unquote managers use to be emotionally intelligent and thus better managers and so I looked at the chart and it had like each each trait and a brief description of what the trait was and I was like oh this is a great chart like all these things are interesting and the whole premise of the book was oh you don't need to have all of these traits but you should have I don't know six of 24 and then you'll be an effective manager according to whoever wrote it and so I was like, oh, this is a great chart. And then I start reading the book, and maybe two sections in, two chapters in, I sort of look at what I had been reading, and I look at the chart, then I look back at the two chapters I read, and then I look at the chart. And each chapter was just an elucidation of why each trait was important, which I guess is interesting. Um, but uh, <laughs> it was sort of like, okay, we need to prove that listening to your coworkers or boss or subordinates we need to prove that the skill of listening is important to being an emotionally intelligent boss and so they go through all these like different academic studies and oh well johnson and johnson over at uh, university of southern milwaukee have shown in this study that seven of 13 participants felt valued more when they were listened to and therefore like they were just chapters filled with that sort of stuff and i, I felt sort of ripped off luckily i had only bought the book at a used bookstore so I didn't shell out serious cash for it but I, I was sort of pissed off I was like oh all I really needed the whole time was just that one page of what the 24 characteristics are because th for me that's all I needed and so with Nietzsche he gives you that high level thing that if you already understand um, if you already have a pretty good grasp of the some of the subjects that he's talking about you can really extend your learning by just sort of dealing with them and seeing that okay well my understanding is here Nietzsche is like five miles ahead of me like I am going to try and see what he's saying and then fill in the rest in my head to like sort of draw a picture of it and that sort of um, that sort of aesthetic sense for truth probably a bad term but let's roll with it that aesthetic sense for truth becomes very important when you're reading Thus Spoke Zarathustra or when we're going to go through it None of the none of the arguments are straightforward. They're all done at a very high level, and in the case of Zarathustra, they tend to be. Think there are a lot of arguments where you can really only understand it by trying to picture it. So there will be a lot of times when someone describes what Zarathustra looks like, or that he walks like a dancer, or that he there's no disgust uh, that lingers around his mouth, or his eyes are clear. Those are all from pretty upfront in the book. But there's a lot of um, visual imagery and uh, allegory and uh, metaphor and simile that Nietzsche uses to try and describe things. And uh, it's very different from most philosophy books. You, oh, I want a proof for why, uh, what is this walking like a dancer thing? Why, what do you mean someone should have light feet? Like uh, people who are a bit more pedantic or a bit more serious about things will have trouble sort of picturing like, yeah, okay. Um, someone who's light on their feet, like, okay, let me try and picture that. Like what what characteristics does that look like? Does does that person seem, in my imagination, like an attractive person? 
And so one thing I would recommend is uh, when you're reading these descriptions of uh, either different personality types or different ways of being or different things, try and picture like try and picture other people you know or characters from movies that sort of seem similar to what you're listening to. And you're going to have to judge in your head and be very honest with yourself. Like, is that attractive? Uh, do I do that? If I do that, is that a good thing? If I do that, is that a bad thing? And uh, I think you'll you'll find that doing that sort of thing will help you out a lot in trying to understand this book. Um, and and that's something that there's a there's a bit of philosophical underpinning that I just sort of like drove over right there. Um, being able to value and say, well, is that good? Is that bad? And one of the things that uh, I'm personally not a fan of in today's day and age is the sort of value relativism, moral relativism that oftentimes you'll be having a conversation with with someone say, oh, you know, I don't like this or I like this or that's bad or that's good. And the person being unable to actually have a conversation with you will just sort of throw up the argument. Well, well, how do we know if it's good or bad? Uh, We can't know. We can't know. And uh, Nietzsche sort of, one of the great things about Nietzsche's philosophy is that he was sort of the person that saw this coming. He saw that, okay, well, God is dead. A lot of our ability to value and make decisions is sort of gone because we don't really have a basis to reality that we can understand, blah, blah, blah. And therefore, our decision-making and our ability to judge things is sort of gone. Uh, What the hell do we do? So he sort of saw nihilism coming. And then he said, okay, well, nihilism is the necessary consequence of what's happened with Christianity and Christian thought. How do we get through that and past that? It's not so much a question of how do I prevent myself from becoming a nihilist. I think that, at least in terms of intellectual development, there comes a point where anyone who is a thorough thinker uh, and challenges themselves to be honest in matters intellectual will, will come to the realization that, yeah, okay, like, God is dead, Um, so Christianity and the religious mindset and the religious way of seeing things doesn't make any sense. Where the hell do I go now? Like, what up is down, left is right? That's uh, to sort of echo the the quote I had at the introduction about the madman going into the market square. But Nietzsche sort of says, okay, this happens, and he experienced all this stuff, and that's one of the things that you'll, you'll really notice. His philosophy is very personal. He's experienced all his problems. He's lived with it. He's lived through it. And he tries to almost be a human barometer for what is it like to hold different views of reality. I, having explored many different perspectives, he can sort of give us a lot of information on, okay, if you try this, like that's sort of the wrong path, but maybe you need to go down it. Or no, definitely don't be like this. Um, you should instead be someone who values things and whatever. And so anyway, Nietzsche will get into that, which is very good for people who, like me, have at one point in time had trouble trouble just making decisions because they don't know the basis upon which they're making decisions. Um, So anyway, uh, try and getting back to the point. You'll notice that I do that. I tend to, in the course of describing things, either go on extremely long tangents or extremely long personal stories or both. And uh, hopefully I come back around to making the main point that I did. Sometimes it just sort of like I start going in a circle and then I get lost somewhere. Uh, But I definitely do try and make it back to the main point. Um, So, yeah, Nietzsche, he, a little bit of Nietzsche himself, um, he 
he was a philosopher, German philosopher, uh, back in the late 1800s. He was active between, as I mentioned, 1875, 1889, and uh, some of the big influences in his life uh, and things that we're going to have to deal with were Schopenhauerian uh, philosophy and uh, Christian religion. His father and a long line of his forefathers before him were Lutheran ministers uh, in Germany, and you can't really have a conversation with about Nietzsche without coming into contact with Schopenhauer and Christianity. But Nietzsche basically, he, he was educated as a philologist, uh, which is basically someone who studies the ancient languages, so like ancient Greek and uh, Latin. And so through his education in that, and he was uh, given a professorship at the age of 24 at the University of Basel, which was at that point the youngest anyone had ever become a professor at that particular institution, which was a very respected institution. So Nietzsche was no slouch. But over the course of his lecturing and his studies, he, he did courses on Plato, on Socrates, but most importantly and most informative to Nietzsche's sort of perspectives and what he liked were the pre-Socratics. Um, so Heraclitus being probably the most important uh, Greek philosopher to Nietzsche, um, he was a big influence. And then a lot of the Greek and Greek playwrights, uh, Greek poets, and then uh, some of the Roman poets as well. And so we'll find as we get into the book that he's dealing with sort of Socrates and Plato and their, their philosophy, which is radically different from the pre-Socratics. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Aristotle uh, because some of Nietzsche's work on virtue is sort of a, a response to Aristotle. Um, but Nietzsche, you'll find, is one of the things that he, he, he's a big fan of sort of the great human being and individuals that sort of stand out in history and stand out uh, amongst the people around them. And Nietzsche's a big fan of greatness and striving towards bettering oneself and being the best that someone can be. Um, and we'll get into a lot of the reasons why and how he sorts of, why he was informed that way, why he thinks that, and what that means for us as uh, students and trainers um, in the Nietzschean sense. Um, so I think that's a good amount of background on Nietzsche generally, thus spoke Zarathustra, and how you're going to have to sort of work along with me through this lecture series. Um, in terms of uh, actually having a copy of the book to go along with this lecture series, I highly recommend doing that. Um, since this book is so dense and since it's so profound and since it is very complicated, it will be hard for me to get into everything that I would want to, and I'm sure there's still a bunch of stuff that me as just a bad student of Nietzsche will have missed. So I would very highly recommend getting a copy to go along with yourself, to study yourself, um, to be able to reference when I bring something up. Uh, but really, I've found there's been a lot of value for myself to sort of reading it and when something sort of stands out to me as being important, I, I read it again and again, I sort of, I try and picture what he's talking about or I really try and meditate on what he's saying uh, because that has been what's, of, what's been of most value to me. And it might even be the case where, like me, you sort of, once you read it through a couple times, you jump from section to section, and you notice, oh, well, you know, when I read uh, when I read the section on the gift-giving virtue at the end of book one, like, before that didn't really mean anything to me, but on my sixth read-through, like, that brought me to the edge of tears because the message was so beautiful, and it sort of 
the the point at which I was in my knowledge building, like I was too far away from understanding that the first couple times reading through, but once I started building my knowledge base, that became both visible and understandable once I got to it. Um, so being able to jump around both in the book and then eventually, if you like this series, within different sections of the series itself uh, will become very important to you. Because oftentimes, like oftentimes I'll just be walking around sort of dealing with my daily life, whether it's my work or different people I'm dating or my friends, and I'll, uh, some issue I'll have will come up and I'll say, oh, I've read, I've read Zarathustra so many times, I know exactly which section I need to go back to, and I'll start reading it, and uh, things will resonate with me again, and I'll say, okay, I notice that whenever something resonates within me, that's when I need to sort of pay attention to that and think about that more. So if you buy yourself a copy of the book, you'll be much better prepared to... Uh, help yourself learn and help yourself develop than you would be without a copy of the book. Um, since the original book was written in German and since Nietzsche was such a, such a wonderful writer, such a great prose writer, um, when it comes to English translations, there are a couple different versions and uh, it's very difficult to actually translate the book into, into English. There are a bunch of different puns and a bunch of different like verb tenses and adjective tenses that just aren't translatable into English. Um, but if you're going to pick yourself up a version, I'm going to be using two versions in particular going through this series. Um, the, the, the version that I, I sort of read the most and was most informative to my reading of Nietzsche and thus spoke Zarathustra was the, was the version translated by R.J. Hollingdale. Uh, he's an English guy. Uh, I think he translated in the 60s, I think. Um, but he does a great job translating. Um, I think most of the word choices are pretty good. Uh, I think that the the structure of the book, he did very well. Um, the newest translation to come out is by, I think he's uh, Scottish, actually. At least he lives in Glasgow. Um, is the Graham Parks version. I think that if you're if you're new to Nietzsche, new to Zarathustra, this is probably, or even new to philosophy, I think this is probably the best version to pick up. Um, not only is the translation as good as the Hollingdale, if not maybe a little better, um, but he has very extensive footnotes and there's a lot of information uh, in those footnotes at the back that discusses or describes exactly what Nietzsche is referring to or sort of what he's satirizing or, or what the point he's making is uh, referencing in classical literature. Um, there's a lot of stuff, obviously, that it doesn't get to or it doesn't point out, but it does a great job at sort of giving you the background or giving you different sources of information to explore on your own if, if you sort of like an idea that pops out at you. Although, to be that, that being said, Nietzsche is mainly arguing with all the things that he references. Very, very infrequently is he sort of... Um, recommending you to go read something often he's sort of criticizing um so those two versions are very good there are other versions um don't read the thomas common version i will very strongly make that recommendation to not pick that version up you'll find it a lot at used bookstores and wherever but don't get it it was uh i guess like version 1.5 translated into english um it uh it takes the biblical format that Nietzsche wrote Zarathustra in a bit too seriously, so there's a lot of these and thous and like weird old English ways of saying things that are in no way clear. 
And <laughs> I read this a long time ago, so it may be true or maybe I'm just making it up. I think in many, many places where Nietzsche uses the word evil, which is a very central, important concept that Nietzsche is discussing, instead of translating böse, which is German for evil, instead of translating it as evil, Thomas Common translate, translates it as bad or something like that. He just sort of butchers the translation of a very important concept. So don't go with that one. Um, Walter Kaufman, uh, I think, what, has another good version, probably my most beautiful, like in terms of the actual physical book. The most beautiful version of the book I have is the Walter Kaufman, like modern library version. It's a nice hard cover and everything's in purple. And I think it's got the painting of Nietzsche by the same guy who painted that picture of the guy screaming where all the colors are sort of melting down. It's a really nice book. But that translation, I don't really, I don't really appreciate. I think that some of the words are a bit off in the structure itself. Uh, in the original German, most of the book, like it's not even really written in paragraphs. It's a lot of like individual sentences. Um, it's very sort of like speech-like in that way. What Kaufman did was put it into paragraph form, which I think really gets away from a lot of the uh, sort of the tempo of the book and the way you're supposed to read it, which to Nietzsche you can find in, I think it's Ecce Homo or elsewhere he's written like, on the importance of the correct pronunciation of the diphthongs and the different syllables and reading things at the right rate uh, in his book because it is a very musical book. Um, so I would stay away from Kaufman. It's good. Like, uh, it's the most beautiful one I have, so it's like featured prominently on my bookshelf. But uh, I would definitely highly recommend either the Hollingdale or the Grand Parks version. Those are going to be what I use. Um yeah, so I think that's good. I think I've given you all the background uh, that you need, a bit of an introduction both on Nietzsche, his central thoughts, who I am, why you might be interested in listening to me. Um, hopefully you enjoy this series, um, and I will talk to you guys in the Zarathustra's prologue section. All right, thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @alexjdrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.